Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 163. My guest for today's episode is Peter Carty. Peter is a brilliant travel writer. He writes for The Guardian in the UK, and that's how I discovered him. I was actually looking for somebody who had gone up a river. I don't, I don't, I don't know why exactly I was thinking of that that day, but I was like, man, I'd love to talk to someone who maybe, you know, uh, canoed or paddled or boated down one of the long rivers in the world. And he had been through one in New Zealand with this really cool story about how the river was uh, full of reverence and like spirituality for the Maori people there. Uh, loved his writing. I think he does a really good job in an art form that I see sort of being sort of dying a little bit. Uh, he, he is very optimistic about the medium. But when I go on and I check out travel writing and a lot of the Matador stuff or even there's stuff on like BuzzFeed, it's always, here's the 10 best mountain peaks. Here's the 10 best rotis in, in India. And it's like, all right, uh, I'm, into the, I'm into the stories. I'm into the prose. I'm into the narratives. I'm into the good stuff. And Peter writes the good stuff. This was a real treat to get to talk to him. He's he's been everywhere. He's a lifer in the in the world of travel, and he's got a wealth of incredible stories. These episodes of late, you likely know if you are a consistent listener, but they're all being done remotely. Obviously, like the world is is shut down for now, and I'm in New York. I'm in really like the epicenter of it here in the states, so we can't go anywhere. So there's no voyages right now. So I say that to say that today's remote recording was pretty hard to do. We had a number of tech issues. Uh, likely a lot of that you're not even going to hear. Um, but some of the problems you might hear is like an echo as I'm speaking because there's a bit of a feedback loop and my own voice was coming through the receiver on my end. Um, so I tried to not talk too much and let... Peter talk, uh, also because what he has to say was far more interesting uh, than what I have to say. But I say that to say, if you do hear a little like echo while I'm talking, just bear bear with me because uh, Peter goes for long stretches of just absolute brilliance, really cool stories, and I promise to follow up in the future with one in person. I'm really hopeful that our paths will cross and I'll be able to get some new stories and some of the ones we weren't able to record today. Obviously, as always, if you go to the show notes, or you've probably seen it already, there's some links in there. There will be a link to Peter's work, as well as his workshops. Peter teaches travel writing. I'm going to take his workshop on June 6th. 6th. So I'm really excited about that. But make sure you check that out. If this sounds interesting to you at all, uh, either traveling or writing, check those things out. You know, I think now is, is the time that a lot of people are sort of planning and scheming and thinking about what they're going to do when, when the world opens back up. So uh, hopefully this episode gave you a little bit of inspiration. Uh, it's got me itchy. <laughs> like, I really want to get back out into the world. I know things are crazy and there's predictions that there might be a recurrence or... Uh, an expansion of the COVID cases in, in the winter. 
So we got to just stay tough and stay tr- strong here uh, until things get as close to normal as they were, or if they ever were normal. So yeah, go check out the show notes. Um, some really, really wonderful, brilliant articles. I was just checking out this other one where Peter had been in the north of Norway, staying at these like glass enclosed um, huts almost or dwellings or rooms. And it looks out over this pristine, beautiful lake and there's the northern lights and it just looked so incredible. Ah, as I'm stuck in a studio apartment in an 86 degree day. Ah, anyway, I digress. I also have a Patreon link in the show notes for this episode. Patreon is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and the kickbacks are t-shirts, stickers, postcards from around the world, things like that. Consider doing that if you want to support this podcast. If you can't do that, uh, word of mouth, telling people about it, leaving a five-star rating and review, all those things go a long way to helping people hear this and to helping downloads and things like that. All right, this one was a real treat for me. I hope you enjoy the stories from Peter Carty. First of all, thank you, Peter. It's great to, to actually get to talk to you here. This is cool. No, thanks a lot, Tim. I'm honored. I discovered you and your work when I I was I was actually looking for somebody who had like traveled down a river. And I found an article that you wrote for The Guardian. I'll, I'll give people the title. It's called Mystic River, Canoeing a Living Entity in New Zealand. And Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really brilliant piece, and I'm gonna sort of build Sorry. out build out your story here. But I think I, I first would love for you to maybe just like start with an anecdote from that trip and like what that was all about. Okay, cool. So uh, in in New Zealand, uh, the Maori people have a very strong connection to the environment, to the land. They think of the land uh, as a living entity, as a deity. And they're very, very concerned to protect mountains and rivers. So they've lobbied and persuaded the government to make make one of the rivers into a living entity legally. So it has the legal status of a living entity. And when, when I read about that, I thought I've got to go to that river. I've got to, I've got to canoe down that river. So I went over there and I did that. I went down the river with a load of Maori guys and we had a great, a great time. Um, I fell out of the, the canoe once or twice <laughs> because I always fell out of canoes and kayaks. But it was a great, it was a great trip. Uh, they're great, great people. So we ate uh, lots of Maori food. They, they have a cooking method of burying food in the ground. They heat it, heat it up with uh, hot rocks, and then they bury, bury, wrap it up and bury it with the rocks under the ground. It's great, great food. And I went to a number of religious ceremonies. And the way, uh, the way is kind of working out is that uh, farmers and other other um, businesses are being a lot more careful about polluting the river. So it's kind of working all around. But it was a great trip. It started really high up in the mountains, and it went all the way down the river in the canoe uh, to uh, uh, near 
nearly out into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, New Zealand, that part of New Zealand's great. It's uh, right, lots of vineyards, lots of na- uh, nature reserves, great, great farmland, um, great food. It was a fantastic trip. Wow. You know what I, what I really loved about it, Peter? And I, I'm going to kind of break from my uh, chronology for a second. Is sure. I really liked your narrative style. And, you know, I'm a, like a Anthony Bourdain fanboy. And um, I've written a little bit. And what I've noticed from travel writing, even on major publications, is that the like first person narrative uh, like the prose is dying and it's being replaced by you know even in like the times by these like here's the 10 best wine places in tuscany or oh yeah yeah the listicles yeah yeah i mean is is this a like do you think this is a dying art i know you teach it and we'll get into that but like why has that transition happened uh, I guess uh, uh, the main reasons the internet. Partly, people always used to love reading lists, um, and certainly travel has it has traditionally led itself to lists like the ten best beaches has been a perennial favourite. But once the internet came along, I mean, a lot a lot of people love reading lists online. So the end, the result at the moment is that, say, half the travel section in a newspaper, like the Times or the Guardian, half the online coverage tends to be lists of the six best restaurants in Rome or the 10 best beaches on the Mediterranean and so on. But there is still a, a, a big place for narrative travel writer, writing where the, the writer goes along and tells his or her story. That's still quite a big component of travel writing. It hasn't, it hasn't gone away. There is, room, there is room for every kind of coverage. Mm. Well, that gives me hope. <laughs> yeah, well, there's hope for us all. So, I mean, travel writers like, like me aren't, aren't going to fade out. Uh, Travel narrative books are still extremely popular. Like you have a guy over there called Bill Bryson, yeah. I believe, who, who still sells a few books. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's another fantastic uh, US writer, Paul Theroux. Mm-hmm. Paul Theroux's probably, well, he's certainly one of the best travel writers. He's a fantastic pro stylist and he's still going strong. He's done um, a couple of fantastic books recently, one on um, the the American Deep South, and he's got another one out on, on the U.S. at the moment. Um, so he's still, he's still an enormously popular writer. Well, that's... And there's lots of others. That's sort of where my passion for uh, whatever people call wanderlust or whatever, like my passion for traveling began when I was quite young and I would read these, you know, the classics, but they're amended for kids, right? So like the illustrated classics, like Treasure Island, Robinson Crusoe and things like that. And they often are based on, you know, fantasy places and fictional settings, but it made me want to go out into the world and have my own adventures. Uh, what, where, where did your, your, your love for travel come from? Well, I, uh, I grew up on Merseyside uh, I'm, I'm a Liverpudlian. I'm what they call a scouser. 
a Liverpool's a big a big Atlantic port, so it's full of. Uh, I used to stand on the riverbank as as a small boy, and I'd watch the ships line up and head off over the horizon. And as they dropped over the horizon, I'd see the steam from the funnels like hanging over the horizon, waving goodbye. And I vowed when I was grown up, I, I was going to follow follow them and see see what the world had to offer out in the Atlantic, uh, which is kind of what I did. Also, my dad, my dad was a sailor and he, he worked later on, he worked around the docks in Liverpool. So that had to make a big influence on me. And of course there were all sorts of, all sorts of cultural and, and, and physical things going in and out of Liverpool. Um, it's a great North Atlantic port, just like New York. So we had a lot of music, a lot of other kinds of culture. It was a very exciting place to, to grow up. And it, it filled me with a, a big, big desire to travel once I was grown up. So that's kind of where I came from Did you in terms of why, you know, why I had this great urge to travel. Did you also know that you wanted to write at a young age? Oh, yeah, I wanted to write from a very early age. From about the age of five or six, I knew I wanted to wow. be a writer. I was never in any any real doubt. And I was very lucky to grow up in a culture that, that was very verbal. So Liverpool, uh, the people in Liverpool, their combination of Irish people and Welsh people, those are the two main, main um, cultural influences. There's some... There's some Afro-Caribbean people there as well, but uh, there's a lot of Celtic culture, and that's a very, a very verbal culture. People are very quick verbally, great sense of humour, very strong imagery, and that that's a, a gift for a writer. So, so from a very, very early age, five or six, I, I knew I wanted to write. Was the U.S. trip the first trip that you took by yourself? Uh, well, I came with a couple of friends. So uh. it was when I was nineteen, and we we decided to travel round round the U.S. by Greyhound, which was a bit of a thing. It's still a bit of a thing, and the reason is that if you haven't got much money, you could sleep on the bus. So we got one of these tickets that that would let us go anywhere for a month on the bus. Uh, so we went. We went. Uh, we landed in New York, which was amazing. So New York is is such a fantastic city. It's another great Atlantic port, and it's full of the. As you know, it's full of these beautiful sandstone tenements. It's oddly there's a city in Scotland called Glasgow. I don't know if you've been there or, or you've heard of it. And it has the same sort of beautiful old sand, sandstone tenements. Um, and I remember, I remember thinking, wow, you know, this, this is an oddly familiar city. And we had, we had a few adventures in New York because back then, this is the early 1980s. It wasn't the same as it is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was quite wild in some respects around Manhattan at the East Village. I remember a guy, um, so I was out in the East Village uh, very, very late one night and we'd had a lot to drink and some guys tried to hold us up. Uh, uh, one of them pulled um, 
there's a gun called a 2-2, isn't there? I think we don't have guns in the UK, so I'm not very familiar with firearms. But he said, you you guys, you're from Liverpool, you think you're tough, uh, don't you? So I said, yeah, because <laughs> it, it would have been a mistake to say no. And he said, well, I've got a 2-2 here, let's see how tough you are. So because because I was 19 and very drunk, I said to him, "Well, let's let's play Russian roulette with it then." And he looked he looked at me, and he was with his friends, and he really didn't know what to do. So they just walked. He just said, "You you English guys, you're crazy." And they just they just walked away. They didn't want to have anything to do with us anymore. Wow. Of course, if that happened today, I'd just hand over all the credit cards to <laughs> buddy immediately. But uh, I was I was a teenager back then. And then um, after that, we set off on the bus on the Greyhound, and it was a fantastic trip. It was a bit weird sleeping on the bus, I have to say, because, you know, we were doing it for several weeks. And it got to the point where when we got off the bus, it, it, the ground was moving under our feet because we weren't, we weren't sleeping that well. But it was still a, a great trip. Um, the only time we slept in a hotel was in San Francisco, and that that was that was fantastic. That we went out to um, Barclay. I remember playing pool in a bar with some guys, and they were saying, um, "Peter, you you know we like you. We want to give you some acid. Do you want to drop some acid?" And I said, "Well, I'm not so sure about that. You know, I'm a long way a long way from home." And they said, don't worry, you know, it'll, it'll be great. But I backed out of that one because it, it just seemed a trip, a trip <laughs> too far to me. But um, it, it, it really was a fantastic way to see, see America. And I've never, I've never forgotten it. Um, and then after, after that, um, I got a job. I came back to the UK and then a bit later on, I got a job in sub-Saharan Africa because I'd always wanted to go to Africa. So I got a job teaching in the township. And that was a fantastic job. Uh, the, kids, the kids were really good students. They really wanted to learn. They, they didn't have shoes, a lot of them. They were in bare feet. And they, they still had a uniform, but they'd have these ties. The ties would be in strips, you know, like, like really tatty. But the kids were all um, really well behaved. And the food, the food in the township was great. There was a lot of um, what they call mealy meal, uh, corn um, and stew beef. And they lived in these um, houses. They're really immaculate houses, really clean, but really small, like sort of sheds or allotment huts. But I had a fantastic time. I traveled all over, all over Africa. And I started to write around that time, so got into journalism. And then after a while, I became a, a travel, travel writer. People started, magazines and newspapers started to commission me. So after that, yeah, it, it was open sesame. I just traveled where, wherever I could. Wow. I mean, I wrote about it. it travel networks are really common now be, because of the internet. Um, but I'm thinking about Africa cause I know from my experience there that there's not even like, uh, like interstate, like not interstate, but like inter-country highways or anything like that or railways. What was it like getting around Africa? Like in, in the eighties? 
Um, well, the country was in was uh, Zimbabwe, and the roads there were actually really good at the time. They're really well maintained. But then, uh, after a while, I decided to uh, hitchhike out of Zimbabwe across Malawi, uh, across Zambia and into Malawi, and that was really quite different. So the roads in Zambia weren't all that well maintained. There were potholes the size of a whole car. Wow. So at some points there was a crane lifting lifting the vehicle across the pothole, and also you weren't. Um, you really weren't meant to hitchhike across Zambia. It, it was forbidden. And there were stories of, of people disappearing on the roads. But I thought I'd give it a shot. And it <laughs> did work quite well. Uh, there was one point, though, where I was in the cab of an oil tanker. And we came to an army roadblock. And the soldiers told me to get out of the cab. They motioned me out of the cab, you know, with their guns. And they led me off the road. And I thought, ah, that's that then. Because, you know, I thought they were going to shoot me in the ditch. Oh, my God. But they start, started saying to me, well, what, what, are you actually, what are you doing? So I tried to explain the concept of hitchhiking to them. And after a while, I think they got it. So they were nodding. So they led me back on the road. And then they made uh, a Land Cruiser stop. It uh, it was a Land Cruiser, Toyota Land Cruiser, driven by a couple of Swedish tourists. And they, they forced the tourists at gunpoint to let me into the back, the back of the vehicle. <laughs> and then uh, the, the, the Swedes drove me for 200 miles in a state of shock. So, you know, it kind of worked, but not necessarily in a way that, that worked for the, uh, the Swedish guys giving me the lift. Wow. Um, but Malawi was great. Uh, so there's a big lake in the middle, and they've got a steamer going up and down it. So you you could get on the steam and then swim off the islands. And there's a Carlsberg brewery as well in Malawi. So this was this was a little bit before Madonna arrived, you know, and adopted the kids. Um, it's still it's still a great country. It, it's a poor country, but it's very it, it's a great place, great people. So I saw a lot of Africa. Um, I didn't go to South Africa then because there was still apartheid there. So I didn't, I, you know, I, I really didn't want to go there at that point. But I've been there since, um, you know, after apartheid ended. And that, that's another fantastic country. Cape Town's one of the most beautiful cities in the, in the whole world, well worth a visit. Wow. Um I keep hearing a crazy echo when I talk, so hopefully I'll be able to fix that in the post. I mean, these are... If you need to re-record any of this, that's fine. It's not a problem. It's okay. We'll see. I mean, these are... We'll see if it works. Like, these these are brilliant stories, man. I mean, what you've said alone could, you know, constitute a memoir. Have you Have you written in long form about your stories? Um, I haven't, I haven't yet. I mean, I might do. Um, I mean, thing, you know, things are still happening. I've been quite lucky. I've had a very full life, but it, it ain't over yet. There's still, um, there's still quite a few countries I haven't been, but um, I have made, I have made some great trips over the past few years. So the last time I was in America, I was in Alaska, 
Have, have you been up to Alaska? Uh, no, not yet. It's a great place. I'd very strongly recommend it. I've never been anywhere in the US that, that I haven't really loved. Um, to be honest, though, I haven't been anywhere in the whole world that I haven't really, I haven't really liked an awful lot. But Alaska's really out there. So I love this whole whole um, whole culture that, that that somebody can go off into the wild and you know trap and kill kill their own food. Um, so there are, there are all these, all these guys all over Alaska, just going it alone. That's, that's a really great, a really great thing to see. And then the scenery. So, so the mountains in Alaska, they're an extension of the Rockies, but they just go on forever. So here in Europe, we've got the Alps and the Alps are pretty good. There's no doubt about that. The Alps are great. But in Alaska, the mountains are like the Alps on steroids. They're so massive and they go on forever. And then you've got these enormous glaciers all over the place. And the wildlife is so, so amazing. I saw, um, I saw whales breach. So, you know, sometimes you see a dolphin leap, leap out of the water in the Caribbean or, or, or the Mediterranean or wherever, but uh, to see a whale, uh, uh, an enormous whale breach is just incredible. Uh, it's not something I'll ever forget. And then the food there, uh, it's the best salmon I've ever had anywhere. Wow. And also, um, they seem to have legalized marijuana in Alaska, which, you know, for somebody from Europe is a bit unusual. So I went into these weed shops and bought weed and that was that was you know that was kind of kind of starting for a European, but generally I loved uh, I loved the, the whole place. That there's more space there than almost anywhere um, I've been, and it's all it's all really beautiful. Wow. Uh, one of the places you mentioned to me when we were talking initially was Laos. Well, what years did you go to Laos? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I went to Lao around about the millennium. Um, and Lao, Lao is uh, another incredible country. So it was really uh, devastated by, by you know, the war in the 1970s in, in Southeast Asia. Yeah. But it's come, it's come back. Um, and it's a very different culture. So, so, for example, I went to the last legal opium den in the world in Luang Prabang. And that was a great, a great night out. So over there, people, people will or, or would go to an opium den like you or I would go to a bar. So it doesn't, it's not exotic in that culture. If we look at it through the lens of our culture, then it becomes exotic. But in their culture, it's just a normal night out. So I went into the opium den and this was all legal. Uh, back then I smoked a few pipes and I remember there was a pipe boy so you have a boy preparing your pipe and the pipe boy was about 55 or something and he looked like a really he looked like a Southeast Asian version of Keith Richards you know the, <laughs> the guitarist in the Rolling Stones yeah like he looked he looked like a really wreck guy and I think what he'd been doing um I mean, I'm not saying Keith Richards look, doesn't look bad for his age, but he's obviously lived a very full life. And this guy looked kind of the same. 
So what he'd been doing was eating the dross from the pipe. So when you smoke an opium pipe, the residue in the pipe bowl uh, is more concentrated in opiates. And the word for it is dross. Quite a few words from opium smoking have permeated the English language. So dross, we, we normally use as a synonym for rubbish. And you meant to discard the dross because it's a bit higher in opiates, but the pipe boy'd obviously been eating it uh, to his detriment. Uh, there's a few other words as well, so hip. So the idea is that the word hip comes from, uh, from opium smokers really going for smoking the pipe so enthusiastically that they lay on the floorboards all day long and all night, and they'd wear a groove in the floorboards. So the word hip was associated with opium smokers because they left these little indentations in the floorboards because wow. they, ju they just lay on the floor smoking the pipes so much. Um, so that was great. Um, I had to chat with a few people in the opium den. There were people like, um, you know, retired bus drivers because it's quite a mundane thing over there, but it seemed, you know, again, it seems really exotic and out there to us. But it was a great country, and the food there is fantastic. So because they were a French colony, they, they've got a lot of uh, really superior French cuisine, uh, some Asian fusion as well, and a lot of great, great seafood. And it's, uh, it's another fantastic country to travel around, lots of rainforest, lots of mountains. So I really enjoyed, enjoyed my time there. Yeah, I went to Lawang Prabang, but I did not go to an opium den. That is, <laughs> that's one that, uh, I think I went in 2016, so those are all closed up. Oh, okay, yeah, so for now, um, the um, you can't do it legally anymore. So that, that uh, particular avenue to, clash, to pleasure is closed. Have you ever chewed a betel nut? Uh, half, yeah. I mean, it's um, so in uh, in Asia, in a lot of Asia, people will and in India, in particular India, India, Bangladesh. There's there's a thing called pan. So they wrap uh, the betel leaf around um, various spices, and then you put it in your cheek like a, a quid, and and then you, you know you get you get a lift off it. So it's a bit of a cross between um, coffee and, and tobacco, say, you do get a little buzz off it. Nothing, nothing um, enormous, but really quite nice. Sometimes they put uh, tobacco in, in the battle leaf as well. So, you, you know, you get the nicotine as well as, as, well as the uh, battle high. But you have to be a bit careful because if you do it a lot, it really stains your teeth and, and starts to make your teeth look terrible. That doesn't make a lot of difference to me as a Brit because <laughs> in, in the UK, we have terrible teeth. We don't have the same dentistry that, that you guys have over in the US. Yeah. But if I was American, I'd be quite, <laughs> quite uh, wary of chewing a lot of metal because your teeth get uh, crimson and, and jagged. Yeah, it makes it, it, it looks like your mouth is like full of just like this blood red color. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah, you start to look really European in terms of <laughs> dental care or, or, you know, you start to look really British in, in terms of your teeth after a bit. 
you know, careful. I don't, I don't know anyone who's been to Bangladesh. What, like, when did you go there and what were your experiences like there? Uh, that would be about 10 years ago. So, so the idea was really that in you, in the UK and I think in New York, you have a lot of Bangladeshi people in New York too, don't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, again, you know, they're great. They're great people. They've got a great culture. So there's a couple of million of them in the UK. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I should have this whole, whole areas of town that are Bangladeshi communities. And I thought it'd be really interesting to go over there and see what it's like in Bangladesh. So a lot of people go to India from Europe and from North America, but very, very few people go to Bangladesh, really not, not many people so far. So on, um, on my trip there, the first thing was I had to change planes in the Middle East. So the final leg of the journey over to Dakar, so Dakar's the capital of Bangladesh. I was the only white guy on the plane and it was a big plane. So, you know, that was, um, that was great, you know, but kind of, kind of out there really. Um, and then when I got to Dakar, Dakar's an incredible city. So you've got a river, a river running through Dakar, but it's a bit like the Hudson. Um, it's quite a wide river, a lot wider than the Thames in London, for example. But you have the scene on the river of really quite big cargo ships. And then you've got smaller boats, maybe tugboats and so on. But then you've got canoes as well. So you have this incredible mixture of boats. And the big boats have the, their sirens going all the time to warn the, the smaller craft to stay out of the way. Um, and it's an incredible scene. It's a bit like how probably, you know, the Hudson or the Thames was in the 19th century with a big mixture of boats and everyone trying to keep out of each other's way. And then in Dakar itself, um, it is quite a polluted city, I have to say. So the level of pollution, it, it's really not like Northern America or, or Europe. Um, so it's not a great idea in some parts of Dakar to stay outdoors more than say 20 minutes or half an hour because it, it really it really does literally almost grab you by the throat but um also the main um so the taxis that uh this is a capital city bear in mind the taxis that are still rickshaws with with men peddling them so you have a lot of uh a lot of guys you know peddling these these uh, rickshaws around all day, quite quite thin looking guys, you know, with quite muscular legs. So it really was um it really was a different culture. And one of the things is is overall it's a poorer country than India. And that that really is saying a lot um because you know there's quite a lot of poverty in India even even now. And there's a lot of people in, in Bangladesh there's maybe uh, 800, 900 million people there. So, every, and it, it's a big country, but it's not that big. So, everywhere you go, there's a lot. There's a lot of people. There's an awful lot of people. So, one point, I went out to um, a tropical island off the coast, and I thought, as we as we approached the the island on the boat, I was thinking, great, you know, beaches, palm trees, 
And I thought, ah, there's no people. I can't see anyone on the beach. But once we got there, there were like 10,000 people living behind the palm trees. So, so there's people everywhere. Um, and for people from the UK going there, um, a lot of us will go see Salat because there's one area of Bangladesh that almost all the Bangladeshi people in Britain are from, and that's Salat. So it's as if, um, I'm trying to think of an analogy, it's as if um, all the American people in in France, say, all the American people who've gone to, to live in France were all from Brooklyn. It's a bit it's a bit like that. But I think it must have all been word of mouth. So there's a couple of million million of them here in the UK. And I think I think, you know, there's in New York there must be I don't know, a, a Bangladeshi community of of, of a reasonable size, maybe fifty thousand people, something like that. Yeah, uh, primarily in I, Queens. I think a lot of them drive cabs in New York. You know, you got me thinking about something. I've never been to Bangladesh, but I know that its government can be pretty oppressive. Uh, in recent times, journalists have been silenced and have disappeared. Um, you know, there's there's factories there that are producing clothes for like Old Navy that are employing uh girls and, and, and children really like, and you've seen now with COVID, yeah. like kids had to get sent back to, to work in the factories despite the pandemic. Um, and sure. I've, I've been a lot of places and it sounds as if you have too, where, you know, we have this impression of the place in our media and maybe in our collective conscience. And, but I've met only lovely people who are living under yeah. a, yeah. a far from lovely uh, government and power structure. And I just wonder through your travels, if you've had any sort of like broad realizations or like generalizations about people in the world that you've come to, uh, that you've come to know. Um, well, I've been to some, uh, countries that, that on paper are very repressive. So I've been to Iran, for example, um, and I met I met a lot of Iranian people outside of Iran to start with, and they're lovely people. I mean, the Persian diaspora is full of uh, very intelligent, cosmopolitan, highly educated people, and it was the same in Iran. The people there are great. Um, I'm never I've never had any problems with Iranian people. And I met them in Iran and all over the world. And and that goes for every other country. I mean, the people I meet are always fine. Um, the poli the politics varies, but it's it's always a mistake to assume that the politics and the people are the same. Um I think I think the classic example is India. So my mother and her family grew up in the Raj. They grew up in, in the British Empire in India. And the mixed race, they grew up in Rajasthan. And the empire, um, um, Indians even now have, have a, a really quite unexpected attitude. If you, go, if you go to India and you're a British person, you get a much warmer welcome than if you're from any other country. Because they they have very fond memories of the British people under empire, even though obviously the empire was extremely repressive in in terms of 
um, the governance of Indian people. So, I mean, I all, I always wherever going above, I, re- I really get on fine with with people, and it works the other way around. They don't um, they don't necessarily associate me with with the country I'm from or or you know the historical empire that, that the country uh, I'm from ran. Um, and you always you always get a fantastic welcome in in India as a British person. And I mean, the same goes for America, to be honest. You, you know, you'd think really that um, given given the history, which which isn't that long ago in global terms, it's only about three centuries. You'd think um, you think Brits would get the bums rush, really. But uh, it's not like that. Um, uh, I've, I've always felt extremely welcome in America. Yeah, maybe a similar situation for me was being in the war crimes museum in Ho Chi Minh City and just thinking like, Mm. oh my God, what a horrible, like completely inhuman thing that was caused by my government. And you see like even quotes in the museum from people who were affected that are saying like, we love the American people, we don't love the American government. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the way that's the way it always plays, isn't it? So in um, in uh, Britain at the moment, last weekend we celebrated the um, victory in Europe Day. So that was the day the Germans surrendered. Um, my uncle Ted was at the final uh, surrender ceremony. So he he fought his way across Europe. Um, Normandy, right, right through to the final uh, surrender at Lundberg Heath, and he said to me, um, "When the Germans surrendered, they polished their boots. They looked really smart. They they made an effort, even for the surrender ceremony. But the Brits, the Brits didn't really bother. Um, so, but you know, he never he never had any issues with German people whatsoever. He got on really well with everyone." So it's always, you, you know, it's always the government and the people are uh, uh, separate, even even when it comes to, to wars, I think. And I know that Americans get a very warm welcome in Southeast Asia. The people don't don't associate individual American people with, with the history of conflict in, in that region at all. I want to go back to Iran for a second, if we can. Um, were you covering a particular sure. story there or, uh, was there something that you were seeking or were you just like going in blind? Uh, well, I was curious about around. So I went over, I was a guest of the government. So I was looked after really well. Um, it's a big, I mean, one thing about around to remember is it's a very big country. So it's so big that there's different climate zones. So you've got, um, You've got desert, um, you've, you've got mountains, you've got the Central Asian steppe, you've got the Caspian Sea. It's a big, big country, and it takes a while to get around. I actually flew around, around the country, wow. and I saw, um, I saw um, several dif- different regions. Um, but, um, I mean, wherever it went, you, you know, I found the people were, were fine, and there wasn't... Um, there certainly wasn't any anti-British or any anti-American sentiment. Um, I think, I think what tends to happen is that that um, 
you know, without going into the politics too much. But I think the government now and again get gets uh, gets them to put on a show, you, you know, gets them to do a demonstration. But really, they're not. They're not. Um, I mean, Iranian people aren't aren't anti anti British or anti American. They're not. They're not. Um, they're not full of hatred at all. Yeah. Uh, quite quite the opposite. Last summer, my my girlfriend and I went to Morocco, and mm. we spent about three weeks going around the whole country. You know, essentially by bus. Uh, because there's a railway on the western side about halfway down the country, but not something that connects, you know, all of the major cities, as you as you likely know. But what we found was a lot yeah, a yeah. lot of people from Europe come and they do Tangier, even like Tangier for a day. Uh, but most people we talked to were like, "You spent three weeks in Morocco? <laughs> like that's a long time." Um, I, I'm curious yeah. curious to hear about your experiences there. Uh, well, I really like Morocco a lot. Um, it's uh, again, you, you know, the 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 food there is is fantastic. The tagines are amazing. I love the way you can go to the main square in Marrakesh and you can see snake charmers. Um, but then you can wander off the main square, and again, because it was a French colony, they have really outstanding food. So you can go and have a dish of oysters for a couple of books and, and you, you know, you can smoke a shisha and all the rest of it. And then, um, you can go, one of the best things to do in Morocco, could you go into the Atlas mountains? Oh yeah. We loved it. Yeah. So, so you can hike in the Atlas mountains and that's a, that's a wonderful experience. Um, I mean, it's got a great, uh, literary tradition as far as Europeans and, and Americans are concerned. Uh, one of my favorite, one of my favourite books set in Morocco's uh, Paul Bowles, The uh-huh. Sheltering Sky. Have, have you, have you uh, read that one? Uh, I have. Um, and that was a also... A fantastic... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a fantastic piece of literature, isn't it? Yeah, and um, that was one of the really cool things about Tangier is like, you know, there's the ghosts of Bowles and uh, William Burroughs and even like the Rolling Stones going there. Uh, really, really cool history. Yeah. Yeah. So William Burroughs, he hung out there for a while, didn't he? He, he regarded it as a, as a place he called Interzone where he could get access to all the, all the heroin and hashish <laughs> he wanted and also young boys i mean it's interesting that that what was acceptable in some some areas of beat culture now would be completely un, unacceptable in in terms of you know underage underage um boys and so on but that was then and this is now and c- cultures do do change a lot quite rapidly um but he, uh, I mean, Burroughs' best writing, I think, was, was his two two early novels. I think Junkie is outstanding. I do like his uh, cut-up style later on, um, but I, I'm, I'm a real fan of his early um, documentary style writing as, as well. Who were the, uh, the writers who sort of maybe influenced you uh maybe even in terms of your style or or the writers you were reading that made you want to get into writing 
Uh, well, I'm trying to think. So, um, I mean, in terms of um, uh, Liverpool, uh, one of the best um, literary treatments of Liverpool's by Herman Melville. Um, in one of his novels um, has has I think a whole chapter describing Liverpool. Liverpool docks in the mid 19th century and it's an amazing piece of writing and I think the best uh, one of the finest pieces of prose in the 19th century is Moby Dick that's that's an incredible piece of writing and he did that he did that in six weeks apparently so it's like wow. it's like a literary orgasm um, it's unbelievable that he, he could write that novel in, in six weeks and some of that writing is un, unmatchable. And then in terms of um, the 20th century, um, obviously I really love James Joyce. So that's that's my culture. That's Catholic Irish culture. And there was a lot of that in Liverpool when I was a child. So I was an altar boy when I grew up. And a lot of my experiences were very similar to the experiences of, of the characters in the short story collection, Dubliners and later on Ulysses. You could say that Ulysses is the ultimate travel book. If you want to take a trip to Dublin in 1904, uh, apply yourself to that novel because that, 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 that inserts you into Dublin and in, into that Irish society back then. It's the most incredible literary experience anyone, anyone could have in my, my opinion. You know, some of the names that we mentioned, um, Burroughs, Mick Jagger, like these are people who live on the fringes, right? It's, it's, these are the, the artists that influence artists. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, your, your lifestyle, what you, what the way you've lived your life is, is very different. It's, it's outside of the box. How do you think, you know, what, what do you think people's impression of you was like, what, did your family think that what you were doing was crazy? Um, were your friends in on? Well, not really. So, for, so my dad was, you know, traveled a lot and was a sailor. So he saw a lot, a lot of the world. Um, I mean, he was in the Navy during World War Two. So in that way, he was very broad minded. And remember that my brother, my mother grew up in Rajasthan under empire. Um, so my family background is, is, is pretty pretty broad really so um and a lot of my friends are writers and artists so i guess you know um in london the, there's quite a strong creative culture and a creative scene so i fit in quite quite well really to be honest that's cool at at what point did writing start to pay the bills um well, I, I, a lot of my writings come through from journalism. So by the time I was in the late 20s, I was making a full-time living from it. Wow. I think um, it's still possible to do that. And I, te- I teach people how to become travel writers nowadays on my courses. A lot of those courses are online. And I think anyone, anyone can be taught to produce publishable material in terms of in terms of journalism, in terms of nonfiction. I mean, some will be better than others, but you can still, you can still help people to develop. And I really enjoy doing that. Um, I've been running my courses 
for for about 20 years now and they've been very very popular uh, during the lockdown a lot of people have been signing up for the online courses and i do i do find i can always help people develop they always go away with more ideas and more more skills than than when they they arrive Wow. So I was wondering if you still, like you've been so many places, are there still dream destinations for you that you haven't been to or any dream stories that you want to cover? Oh yeah, there's lots. So for example, I haven't been to Hawaii. Uh, I'd love to go to to Hawaii. I've read a lot about it. It sounds sounds an incredible place. Uh, It's a bit hard to get to if you're in Europe, you know, it's it's something like 35 hours of, of flights. Um, you have to go to LA first and then, then go on from there. Um, I haven't been to Hong Kong. I'd love to go to Hong Kong. There's, there's still a lot of places. I mean, the world is still a big place. It might have shrunk. Air travel might have shrunk it, but it's still, it's still a mighty, mighty old place. And there's, there's lots of parts of it I haven't been to. Uh, there's plenty of Africa I haven't seen. There's over 50 countries in Africa. Uh, I mean, I've seen quite a few of them, but there's still plenty left. Um, so you mentioned Cuba when we were writing back and forth. I'd love to hear about your experiences in Cuba. Oh, yeah. Well, that was that was wild. So so I went over to Cuba and I hired a car. And in Cuba, there's there's a kind of custom of, of hitchhiking that's quite serious. So it's kind of your duty if you're in a car to give people a lift. So I stopped and I gave I gave these two women a lift, and I was I was going to I was going to the capital, and I said to them, "Well, you know, I'm going I'm going to Havana. You're welcome to come along." And they said, "Oh, well, can you drop drop us off at our place along the way?" So I said, "Okay," um, but it turned out that, and you know, obviously I didn't know the country or the route, but it turned out that they took me about a hundred miles out of their way <laughs> wow. because I think, I guess from their point of view, I had the car and I was a wealthy foreigner. So I was, I was a fair game for, for a ride. So they literally took me for a ride, but I didn't really mind. But, um, I loved the Cuban people at that point. This was before before Cuba was was opened up. So there was still a blockade and Cubans couldn't leave. But I remember that every bar I went into, there'd be people in there who who really said how how much they'd like to leave Cuba and how difficult it was there. And I'd buy them all a drink because it, it wasn't an expensive place. And then after a bit, you know, in every bar there'd be a dozen people um, buy, uh you know, drink, drinking the round that bought them and complaining very vigorously about the regime. Um, and the only real exceptions were um, I met a gay friend in Havana and he said to me, Peter, you, you know, um, he, he, he's a Brit as well. So he was saying to me, Peter, you've got to take me to the gay scene here. I don't know why it was my duty to take him to the gay scene in Havana. But anyway... So I said to the hotel receptionist, where is the gay scene? And she was a bit surprised. And she had to work with the manager. And then after a bit, she directed me to a corner. This is literally the corner of two streets in Havana. So this was the gay scene. 
So I went along with a friend. I said to him, okay, well, I found out where it is. So we went there. And there were uh, a load of gay guys hanging out there. And they were great. And they said, well, uh, several of them said were boxers, which, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really get, which was fine. But they explained to me after a bit that if you're poor in Cuba, you, you quite often become a boxer because it, it's a way, you know, it's a way out of the barrio, it's a way of earning a living. And we were drinking bottles of rum on the street corner. So we were passing the bottle of rum round. And that, you know, that was the gay scene there. And that was kind of, that was kind of amazing. I mean, it was really, you know, it was a very enjoyable night out. But you wouldn't, I don't think you'd see anything like that in Europe or North America. That was a real eye opener. And I don't think, I don't think Castro was always nice to the gay guys. Um, but anyway, it was a great night out. <laughs> and um I mean, it's an amazing, it is an amazing country. What I did find was when I talked to very poor people, they did like Castro. They did like that. They said, you know, he's been good to us. So I think for the very, a lot of the very poor people, it worked. But I think for middle-class people with aspirations, they, they felt frustrated and they, they wanted to get out of there. And I imagine, I imagine it's still, it's still like that now, except that, you know, if you want to leave, you can leave now. Wow. Well, Peter, you have a, a wealth of stories that I find fascinating. I'm going to wrap this for now because of all of our, our, our tech problems. But I, okay. I, I would love to do this in the future uh, in person someday. Maybe our paths will cross. Yeah, yeah. And uh, listen, if the recording isn't good, um, we can have another go. That's not a problem. All right, that, that sounds great. That is a wrap on episode number 163 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Man, what a, what a cool life. What a fortunate, fortunate life that Peter has had. What a full life. He's someone, he's, you know, he's got the fire. What he, what, his stories and his writing, it reminds me of my favorite, my favorite writers and musicians and storytellers, the people that I love to hear about their travels around the world, Bourdain, and I've talked about this a few times, but Henry Rollins talking on various podcasts about his travels is just really cool, and it, oh God, I'm itchy. I got to get back out there. But yeah, for now, I'll just keep listening to these episodes over and over until I can travel again. All right, folks, thank you. I appreciate all of you. The Voyager family is strong. You guys are great. Um, thanks for tuning in. I've got a whole bunch of stuff coming up here, so... Continue to tune in, and I will continue to put these out. All right. Thank you, folks. As always, take care of each other. I'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.